0: Well, several weeks ago, I had the chance to teach alongside the one and the only Scott Shelton, and at the beginning of Scott's message, I don't know if you remember this, but at the beginning of his message, at the beginning of our message, he said, when Jerry is away, we will play. Well, the way I see it today, neither Jerry nor Scott is here, so we're about to have some fun. They obviously pulled out all the stops and they decorated because they knew I was going to be here. I appreciate it. Uh, About a month ago, we started into a series on Galatians, and week by week, we've we've been going through this letter that Paul writes to the church in Galatia. And I have to say that we're at what I would consider the last week of what's been a somewhat tedious look um, by Paul at grace versus law. If I had to kind of crudely break down Galatians into chunks, I would have said chapters 1 and 2 are very personal. It's Paul's defense of his apostleship. It's him defending his right as an apostle. Chapters 3 and 4 are what we've been in recently, and chapters 3 and 4 are Paul's uh, talk about grace versus law. It's doctrinal talk, and then in chapters 5 and 6, it's practical. It's an application of what he was talking about in chapters 3 and chapter 4. So this morning, we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 4, and like I said, this is kind of the end of Paul's take on grace, law, doctrine, and it's chapter 4, verse 21. So if you have your Bible, grab that, follow along. It'll be on the screen, so you can can look it up on your phone. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be subject to the law, will you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. One, the child of the slave, was born according to the flesh. The other, the child of the free woman, was born through the promise. Now this is an allegory. These women are two covenants. One woman, in fact, is Hagar, from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. The other woman corresponds to the Jerusalem above. She is free, and she is our mother.
1: For it is written,
0: Rejoice, you childless one, you who bear no children. Burst into song and shout, you who endure no birth pangs. For the children of the desolate woman are more numerous than the children of the one who is married. Now you, my friends, are children of the promise like Isaac. But just as at that time the child who was born according to the flesh persecuted the child who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her child, for the child of the slave will not share the inheritance with the child of the free woman. So then, friends, we are children, not of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When I read through the text for this morning and realized that I was going to be teaching, it became real obvious why Jerry and Scott are not here. (laughs) This is one of the tougher passages in Galatians, and... um, we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning. We're going, to, we're going to wrestle with kind of the words on the page, but then we're going to spend some time um, talking about a couple things that, that that jump out of the text for me personally um, and, and share those with, with you. Jerry mentioned this last week, but me, Scott, and Jerry have kind of talked these last couple chapters of Galatians. We've talked about it and about how Paul is painstakingly making his point that grace is a better way to live. That the law keeps us chained, he make, it makes us slaves, and that the gospel is for everyone, no strings attached. In the text this morning, here in chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 5, this is kind of Paul's last jab. He uses a familiar story, a story that most of us know Abraham and Sarah. Now remember, Paul's addressing a group of people in Galatia, a specific group of people in Galatia, a group of Jewish Christians that are telling Gentiles, non Jews, that they have to do Jewish stuff in order to be Christian, and Paul's trying to combat that. And he uses the story of Abraham and Sarah to make his point. But before we get into the story of Abraham and Sarah and what, what Paul's doing with that story, I want you guys to pretend with me for a moment. Are you okay with that? I live with a six-and-a-half-year-old, and I spend a lot of time pretending, so I'm pretty good at it. So you're going to have to up your game this morning. But we're going to take a little bit of time, and we're going to pretend. And what you guys are going to do, you're going to pretend that you guys are good first-century Jews. Got it? Good first-century Jews. I can tell you're going to be good at this. And as a good first-century Jew, you know you, would, you started school or you're starting school at age five. And school for you is you're going to go to your local synagogue, and you're going to meet your rabbi, who for the next four or five years is going to teach you the Torah which is the first five books of the Bible. And if you're a good first century Jew, at the, around age 10, you're going to finish up with that first chunk of school. And at the end of that first chunk of school, most of you will have the Torah memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. You have that memorized, correct? Oh, yeah. And you don't just know the stories. You know the the stories. You know the words and they're a part of you and you take them with you. Now this would be especially true for Paul who I'm going to go ahead and venture and say he was a better first century Jew than you were. Paul studied as a rabbi under one of the most respected and well-known rabbis of the time, Gamaliel. We know that Paul wasn't a fisherman or shepherd or a tax collector. He was a student. He was studying Now, to get to this point, Paul would have completed multiple levels of school. We know where he's from. He came from a well-educated place, and he would have completed multiple levels of school. That would have taken him to the point where he most likely would have had all the Old Testament scriptures memorized. Genesis through Malachi. We have that, right? Yeah. So now, back to Galatians. It is Jewish Christians in Galatia that are unable to let go of Jewish customs And are demanding that Gentiles adopt Jewish custom and law in order to be Christian. And Paul steps in and he reminds them of a story. A story that they all know. A story that they all have memorized. The story of Abraham and Sarah. And just in case some of the details are fuzzy, here's the quick recap. So God makes a promise to Abraham. That Abraham is going to be the father of a great nation. God made this promise when Abraham was 75 years old and his wife Sarah was six, about 65. Now we fast forward 10 years later, Abraham's 85 and Sarah's 75 and there's still no child. So Abraham and Sarah begin to seriously doubt that this promise thing is going to happen, and rightfully so, considering their age. So Sarah, in not one of her finest moments, says... I don't think this is going to work out. I think God could use our help. So how about I arrange for my servant, Hagar, to bear a child for us? Husbands in the room, if your wife ever comes to you and says, I know a woman who could bear a child for us, just say no. Learn from Abraham. Because this is what happens. Abraham takes Hagar as a wife, and they have a child, and they name him Ishmael. As you might have guessed, this didn't go over all that well. Even though it's Sarah's idea, Sarah gets pretty ticked off to the point where she treats Hagar pretty poorly and Hagar and Ishmael run away. So let's fast forward again. This time let's fast forward 15 years. So at this point, Abraham is 99, 100 years old. In fact, the, the author of Hebrews talks about Abraham at this time in his life and says that he's as good as dead. He's old. And Sarah is about 90 And God being God, he follows through on his promise, and Sarah has a child, and they name him Isaac. And so what Paul has done in Galatians is he creates two categories. He puts Abraham right in the middle, and then he creates two categories. He has Sarah on this side and Hagar on this side. Sarah is a free woman. She's Abraham's wife. She's free. Hagar is a servant. She's a slave. Sarah has a son, and they name him Isaac. Hagar has a son, and they name him Ishmael. Isaac is the son of the promise that God has made. Ishmael is the son of the flesh. Isaac was born out of miraculous circumstances, not unlike another Jew that's born many, many years later in Jesus. And Ishmael was born of natural circumstances. So Paul creates these two columns, and he basically says, there's two different categories that we all kind of fit in right now. And so as the reader of Galatians, we, did, we kind of begin to put ourselves in that category. One of the two categories. So Paul uses this story, and he even says he uses this story as an allegory. A way of telling the story that might open us up to something that we hadn't seen yet. And it's actually a pretty good argument. Because the Jewish Christians in Galatia are saying, yeah, it's good that you believe in this Jesus guy, But you're going to need to obey the law in order to be a child of Abraham. And Paul's basic point is the moment you believed in this Jesus guy, you were a child of Abraham. You were an heir to the promise. And the moment you start thinking that you have to obey the whole of the law, you're not a child of Abraham at all. Now in the columns that Paul creates, he also adds two other things that I find interesting. He adds Mount Sinai, which we know is where the law was given to Moses. And he adds current Jerusalem, which is pretty much the epicenter of the Jewish faith because that's where the temple is. Now what Paul does with those two things is pretty fascinating. He talks about Mount Sinai and he talks about current Jerusalem and he puts them in the category of Hagar. Now as a devout Jew, even as a devout Jewish Christian in Galatia, the the message is pretty clear. You are a son of Hagar. That would not have gone over all that well. They're children of Hagar. They are slaves. The law that they so desperately cling to has left them enslaved. Now the Gentiles in Galatia are being told by these devout Jewish Christians that they are polluted and flawed and that they need the law in order to make things right. But Paul is telling us in Galatians that the gospel does not care who you are. The gospel does not care who you were. You may be a spiritual or moral outcast like the Gentiles, or as marginal and unlikely as Sarah, the barren woman, but the gospel doesn't care. Grace does not care. The gospel does not care who you are or who you were. Grace does not care who you are or who you were. The gospel is good news of God. Come to earth, crucified, dead, resurrected, and it's for everyone, not contingent on anything that we can do. But these Jewish Christians keep, were keeping Gentiles from the gospel. They were keeping them at an arm's length from grace. They were saying that Jesus, grace, the gospel are contingent on something else. Which raises an interesting question for us today, I think. For us, individually, for us as a church family. How are we keeping people from Jesus? Are we keeping people from Jesus? Are we keeping people from grace in the gospel? Are we putting obstacles in front of people? Are we excluding? Because I think at the heart of it, this is what Paul is talking about, exclusion. The gospel is for everyone, not just people who follow the law. Now, I said we would talk about the text a little bit, and then there are a couple things that I wanted to pull out um, that personally um, hit me as I read through this text. And so one of the things I want to talk about personally that hits me it has to do with personal space. Does anybody in here have issues with personal space? Boundaries that they need to keep? No one? I do. I'm going to go, yeah, okay, I, I, I do. Um, so as I thought about personal space, there was a, there's a few t- instances in my life that I can point to and say, my, my uh, personal space was challenged at, at best. And one of those instances was at Wrigley Field. I am a big baseball fan. In particular, I'm a pretty big Cubs fan. And I've been to my fair share of baseball games, but there's something special about a Cubs game at Wrigley Field. Even if you're a Cub hater in the room, you have to admit that there's something special about watching a baseball game at Wrigley Field. Now, before I go on with my personal space story, because I'm a pretty big Cubs fan, there are a few things that I just have to, have to do. Um, the, the Wrigley Field is known as the what? Somebody say it loud. Friendly confines. The friendly confines. And for a good reason. It's a friendly place most of the time. Now, that that one was pretty easy. This next one, I'm going to educate you guys, and you're going to be able to walk out of here this morning, and you can go to Wrigley Field, and people will think you're a genius, okay? When you go to Wrigley Field, this is something that you'll see. You'll see it inside the stadium. You'll see it outside the stadium. It was first put up by one of the the building owners outside of Wrigley Field in Wrigleyville, Does anybody know what these numbers letters mean? Somebody say it loud. How long since the World championship? That's good. It actually gives us three things that maybe the Cubs haven't done that well. Uh, It's supposed to be a marker of how well or not well they've done, and unfortunately they haven't done well. So these numbers, AC, when you see AC, that means in the year of our Cubs. Okay. Now, I'm not making this up. This is legit. Now that you have this string of numbers, the first two numbers are how many years it's been since the Cubs have won their division. So it's been seven years since they won the National League Central Division. The next two numbers, 70, are the years it's been since they won the National League pennant. So it's been 70 years since they won the National League pennant. They added a number to our list here seven years ago. Because the last three numbers are how long it's been since they've won the World Series. So it's been 107 years since they've won the World Series. But see, now don't you feel educated? Now you can go to Wrigley and you'll see these numbers. And I know what that means. That, that's something to say. So back to Wrigley. It's a special place and I remember a time 10 years ago when I was at a game. And it was a special game. It was one of those games where everything was going wrong. Which isn't that unusual for the Cubs. Until the ninth inning, when it mattered, things started to change. The Cubs were down by five in the bottom of the ninth, which is pretty much game over. But slowly and surely, the Cubs started to come back. Runs were coming in. The crowd was getting into it. High fives were being given. If you've ever been to Wrigley Field, you're going to get a lot of high fives. But when they're coming back, you're going to get a whole lot of high fives with people you don't even know. I was leaving my row to give people high fives in other rows. The game slowly got closer and closer until so they tied. Now, here's where it gets weird because the high fives turned into something else. The high fives turned into hugs, which got a little too close for me. But I was excited, so I started doling out the hugs like everybody else. And sure enough, the Cubs ended up winning the game. When they won the game, I saw a guy who was on the floor holding his friend at his ankles, hugging his legs because he was so excited. That's where I kind of drew the line. I was like, okay, I'm going to step away. But that was a moment in time where my personal space was a little bit challenged because there was a lot, a lot of hugging going on. And that's not even to mention the restrooms if you've been to the restrooms at Wrigley Field. But another instance of personal space that made me that came to mind was the 500. How many of you guys have been to the 500? Now this, is, this might be more relatable, okay? Growing up, I went to the 500 a lot. Now, me, my dad, my brother, my, my uncle, and my three cousins would come up almost every year from Louisville to go to the 500. And there's something about 400,000 people crammed into the speedway that puts your personal space into question. The seats aren't really seats, if you've sat in the seats. There's only enough room to get a little bit of your bottom on the seat. It's crazy. Personal space at the 500 is not an option. You get close, and you get as cozy as you can, and you just buckle in for the next four hours. Now, the reason I tell you these couple things is because all of us have personal space. We all have the space that we allow people into, the problem is, is we allow people into it, which means we exclude others from entering it. And so the question for us is, who are we excluding? And it's the question we always have to ask ourselves. It's the question that Paul wrestles with in Galatians. Now, are there any middle school boys in the room? It's okay. I, I, you're not going to probably raise your hand even if you are. are you, if you're a middle school, raise it. I'll raise my hand. I was a middle school boy. Okay, so middle school boys. Have you ever seen a middle school boy that just so badly tries to fit in with the crowd? That was me. I was that kid. There's a picture. (laughs) If that doesn't say it, then I don't know what does. What you can't see is my amazingly cool shark tooth necklace that I have on. It's tucked away under my white, collar on my polo a middle school boy is quite possibly the most awkward of all human life forms and i can say i don't know offense i can say that because i was a middle school boy at one time in my life trying so hard to connect and to fit in and to find my place and i just couldn't do it and i don't think most of us can and it's heartbreaking and the reason it's heartbreaking to watch is because we were never made to be excluded We were never made to hold grudges and to hold people at arm's length, to hold bitterness and frustration and disappointment. So once again, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we excluding someone? Are we excluding others? Are we holding them at a distance? Are we having conversations with our neighbors, conversations that show grace and conversations that include and invite? Paul in Galatians is confronting exclusion. He's opening a new worldview that says this Jesus guy is for everyone, not just a select few. You can't earn it. Grace is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. No exclusions, no exceptions, and no contingencies. When I read through this passage, there's one other thing that stands out to me, and it's not the words on the page, but what's behind the words on the page, and that's the guy who's writing the words, Paul. There are moments in our lives when we find out that Things we thought we understood are really not what we thought at all. Like when we found out that Bruce Willis was actually dead through the whole movie. You guys know what movie I'm talking about, right? Sixth Sense? Okay. First hour. No one knew what that was. I don't think. That would change your life. There are moments in life that open our eyes to a new reality, and those moments are powerful and they're sacred. One of those moments for me was seven years ago when I went with a group of 36 high school students and led a group to a a remote place in Ukraine called Zhitomer Ukraine. We partnered with an organization there called Mission to Ukraine. Mission to Ukraine works with kids with severe mental uh, disabilities and physical deformities. And the reason that Mission to Ukraine even started Was because that's an issue in Eastern Europe, particularly in Ukraine. Because both parents have to work. It's a necessity in order to survive. So when a husband and wife have their child and that child is born with severe mental handicaps, severe mental disabilities, or physical deformities, the child was immediately given up. Now there was a system in place for that. The Soviet Union, when the Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union built orphanages in remote places in Ukraine, because no one really wanted to be bothered with them. So they built these orphanages out in these remote regions of Ukraine, and as a parent, if you had a child who you couldn't keep, you could give it to this orphanage and it would be taken care of. The Soviet Union funded that. Which is all well and good to some degree, until December of 1991, when the Soviet Union dissolves. Because when the Soviet Union dissolves, all the money dries up. All the money for staff, supplies, and medications. So now you're left with an orphanage with an extremely small staff, maybe two staff for maybe 300 girls or boys. The orphanages were divided up, boys' orphanages and girls' orphanages. Seven years ago, I got to visit one of these orphanages, and one of the boys that I saw and met was Vitalik. And we have a picture of Vitalik. He made us call him Tolly. At that time, Tali was 11 years old, so he's 18 now. But Tali was born with severe mental handicaps and, and physical deformity. He was confined to a wheelchair. But I sat in Jetomer, Ukraine, and I held Tali. And my worldview changed. Because Tali, in his world, is invisible. He was put in an orphanage to be forgotten. And Tali smiles a lot. Tali's no different than you or I. And as I sat there and held Tolly, an 11-year-old boy who was maybe 60 pounds soaking wet, It hit me like a ton of bricks that we're all a part of this thing together. That Ukraine isn't so far away as it seems. We're all on this journey together. We all need to help each other out. And there are no ordinary people. Paul speaks to this in Galatians. And it's amazing to me to think about Paul and who he was and how he was able to write the words that he did in this letter that we've been looking at. Paul was a good Jew. He was a radical Jew. How he's able to talk about grace in the ways that he does boggles my mind. It's a complete shift in worldview. Paul's run-in with Jesus on the road to Damascus changed him. Paul's run-in with grace changed him. One of my favorite verses that Paul writes is in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, It's by the grace of God that I am who I am. And his grace, to me, was not without effect. By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. The grace of God affects us if we allow it. the moments in our lives where we run into Jesus, where we experience grace, where what we thought we understood things, but we really had no idea, those moments are important. They're powerful. They're holy and they're sacred. And my hope and my prayer often for our church family and for each one of you is that you find those moments, that you seek them out, that you look for them, and you don't have to go to Ukraine. You don't have to go to Haiti, as they mentioned earlier. You don't have to, to go to the ends of the earth to find these moments. These moments are here with us all the time. I have a friend, and her name was Mama Gross, and I, I know it's an unfortunate last name, but it was her last name, and she was my friend. Mama Gross was from Canton, Mississippi, And I met her while I was leading a group of high school students on a trip there to help a church with a VBS, and I had the privilege to help repair some things that needed repaired and had been neglected on Mama's house. Mama was 74 years old. She lived in a tiny little house, and one day while we were working, she made me sit down with her in her family room, her tiny family room that was also her bedroom. She said, you need to sit. You look way too busy. She gave me some of her homemade dandelion wine which was terrible. And we sat <laughs> we sat there and we talked for hours. Mama Gross changed the way I saw the world. She made me promise to send her a card every year on Emma's birthday with a picture of Emma in it. Now keep in mind Mama had never met Emma. When I met Emma Mama, Emma, was six months old, and the only thing she had seen was pictures of her. But she wanted to be connected. But you don't even need to go to Mississippi for moments like that. Some of you in this room this morning are dear friends of mine. And I've had these same moments sitting, laughing, and sharing meals together with you. Sitting and sharing stories and realizing that we're on this thing together and that we need each other's help. And that no matter how hard we try to do it on our own or how many times we try to circumvent what God has already promised in the ways that Sarah did, we just fail. And in the end, we desperately need grace and we desperately need the gospel. And the gospel and grace is completely open and inclusive. Paul figured this out because of that moment on an ordinary road on his way to Damascus when grace Smacked him in the face. We have a good God. And we have a Christ who's come and given us grace that we do not deserve and that we could never earn. And it's ours to share with everyone. Amen? Let's stand and sing.